Hello, everyone. Welcome to Personalization Outbreak Podcast number 10. This week, our discussion will focus on the racial tensions the world is rightly facing as a consequence of institutional systems that were created and perpetuated by design. See, most organizations say they want to be inclusive, yet they fail to admit that their operational infrastructure and systems are and have been designed to be exclusive. To better help us understand these issues, we've invited Pam Abner. Pam is the Vice President and Chief Administrative Officer for Diversity and Inclusion at Mount Sinai Health System in New York. Pam develops and guides strategies to create inclusive and culturally aware environments focused on identifying disparities and eliminating barriers to care, employment, and education for underserved and underrepresented groups. Along with co-host anthropologist Scott Lacey, we will discuss the importance of breaking the silence on systemic racism and how we need to rethink practices, procedures, and get more people involved in the conversation. Together, we will discuss how the recent racist protests have elevated the level of accountability in organizations and why outdated standards can no longer scale in their current form in today's age of personalization. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Pam, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Of course. No, it's our pleasure. So, Pam, um, I'd like for the audience to get to see you and know you as an individual. Now, uh, our audience um, will obviously hear you uh, on the podcast, but they'll also see you because we also are broadcasting this uh, via video. But why is the island? of Anguilla, one of your favorite places in the world. I mean, for our audience, Anguilla lies east of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands and directly north of St. Martin. Why is that one of your most favorite places in the world? Well, one, because I have family roots there. My grandfather's from Anguilla um, and my grandmother was from St. Martin. So I spent a lot of time growing up. Um, I I was born in this country, but I spent a lot of time visiting uh, those two islands. And interestingly, when we first used to go over just for the day to hang out in Anguilla, I didn't really, you know, we kind of took everything for granted, right? The beaches were perfect. No one knew, people would say, where are you going? Most folks in America had no idea what St. Martin was, let alone Anguilla. So now fast forward to where I am now in my life, I realize that it's probably, for me, the most tranquil place, beautiful, serene. Um, and I selfishly don't like to see too many um, many tourists there so it's because i feel like it's mine <laughs> and you know and, and i'm more in touch with things i didn't pay attention to seriously um kind of growing up and things that um my mother wanted us to kind of always be focused on our background and our culture and our family and i didn't I, you know i didn't pay enough attention to it then but i am now and i recently um 
even went back and got my Anguillan status through my grandfather's being born there. So now I'm a, whatever you call it, either a resident or I, so I'm, I have, you know, some official status in Anguilla. And it's the, and probably the most important thing, aside from that connection to family it, and the beautiful beaches and it's not too crowded and all that, is that um, the people there, it's their space. Uh, the native of the island are the dominant culture. It's relaxed. It's just where I have my most peaceful time there. And, um, and that connection, I just feel that's where I belong. Like many places one may go and travel, you're there kind of as a visitor, but I feel as though I belong there. So in the beauty, the tranquility, the simplicity of it, I just um, feel that's where I Thank you, Pam. You know, you mentioned something. You said uh, things that maybe you didn't pay attention before and now you're paying attention to them now. I think this is a very good transition to our discussion today. I mean, you know, I respect, at least I hope you know, that I respect and I'm really drawn to your provocative nature. I mean, you're not afraid uh, to disrupt the status quo. So, Pam, uh, we're now paying attention uh, to racism. We're now paying attention to diversity. We're now paying attention to inclusion, inequities. Uh, we're paying attention to injustices that have created social movements throughout the world. As an African-American woman, what are you thinking and feeling about all of this social unrest? And what do you think that leaders should be thinking and feeling right now? Those are two very uh, pretty deep questions. So personally, um, it's a range of emotions, right? So and it depends on where I am in the day. Mm. So um, outraged, as everyone um, is, by the stories that we're hearing now, but also understanding, coming from my background and who I am, that this is nothing new. So, you know, from being born in, in the skin that I've been born in and my background, it's something that we've known as part of our history for many, many, many years. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, and even at this point, I'm learning more about the history and, and more about the oppression and more about stories that weren't told and things that were hidden. So it's a range of being angry. Um, and I have to tell you this, this is very true. I sometimes in my quiet moments, I think back to what in God's name, how did our people even survive hmm. what they went through to allow me to be in the space that I am? And so I also feel very blessed. And, and I say this like from the bottom of my heart and my friends know this because we talk about it a lot that um, there's a reason why I was given the opportunity to do the work that I do now. Um, I don't take it for granted. And I now feel it's kind of like compassion and, and almost like my duty to use that influence that I have as much as I can. But I visited the country of Ghana twice to go back and just see um, a little bit more about the history and whether my descendants came directly from Ghana or not, but knowing that others, that was a major point of, um, you know, to, departure um, for, for many who, who were taken away under the most horrific circumstances to be, you know, taken, uh, you know, brought to, to this, these lands and what happened to them. So I just feel very connected to that now. And again, um, recognizing that growing up, things were just kind of there and, and I was able to enjoy certain benefits of life, but now feeling that I need to to really pay homage to those who suffered so much and, and understand what they went through so that I can do what I can now to help going forward. Um, 
And in terms of what's going on today, um, you know, it's a tipping point. This, all these things that are happening, it's not just one incident. And I think anyone can recognize that. This is, you know, after 400, 500 years of oppression, people are in a rage. You know, and we talk about this, and I talk about this in, in many of the sessions and discussions that we do. Um, I am, I guess, sometimes flummoxed, sometimes disappointed, sometimes mad. I don't know what it is. Um, when I when I hear and, and talk to people, especially my white colleagues, and, and, and realize that there's such a range of not understanding or denial and kind of not getting it. Um, but then I'm encouraged by the fact that I've been given the opportunity to use my voice and within my organization, uh, speak up. And as you noted, I'm going to make, I speak boldly. Uh, and, you know, once, you know, you give me something to do, don't say to me, you have to do it, but be quiet. I can't do that. So it's either I'm in or I'm not in. And um, working, you know, throughout the organization, starting with our leadership to help make change. Um, that's kind of where I am now. And that's this, I want to use that to the best of my ability to help. Well, Pam, you've said, uh, first of all, thank you for sharing that. And a couple things that uh, came to my mind as you were talking, you know, I, Part of this tipping point is what I've referred to as the tipping point of the cultural demographic shift. It's when large cultural segments of the population reach numbers sufficient enough to have a significant effect on what we do and how we act. Um, you mentioned survival. When you consider that millennials and Gen Z will represent the largest workforce populations uh, in history and that they are the most culturally and ethnically diverse populations in history or generations in history. Um, I actually see that this is the beginning of recognizing that the reinvention of America will come from this generation that will no longer have to ask for permission. And what I also believe is that, and I'd love for you to react to this, uh, and, and I also believe that the fact that you are appreciating, not that you never did, but even more so, um, how fortunate you are to even be here. Much like I feel fortunate. I mean, my parents, a uh, different type of situation, but mm -hmm. still, I mean, they uh, survived Castro's revolution. And I'm grateful that I could be here and having a conversation like this with you today. I think that this survival instinct at a time of renewal and reinvention is a is a premium uh, for this country and where we're headed. Um, any thoughts on on this reflection I'm sharing with you? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly, especially about the uh, the younger generation. Um, a lot has changed, right? So I don't think there's any going coming back, right? So it's yeah, doors wide open, and I think it should stay open. Um, and I do believe from from that which I see, and I'm not you know by all means I don't know everything. But this generation is different. They have different ways of communicating, staying in touch and making, and, and just, again, shifting the, the, the needle. Um, the playing field's going to change. Um, what I feel, and I think that's fabulous, right? And I don't want to, it's kind of hard to say we, and a lot of people have said this, well, it's, the, it's for the next generation to fix everything, like all the mess that we kind of left. In. And um, that's a little unfair, right? I, I have that conversation with, with my daughter sometimes, who's you know in that younger generation, like, 
What kind of mess did you leave us? And that also leaves that generation being vulnerable in a different way, very anxious, concerned, fearful of just their own futures, everything they're dealing with. I think that's, you know, that, that's bad, right? But I also believe that they're not going to let it happen again to them, right? Yeah. Uh, that we that things are and things have changed. If we I pick a point in time, um, even in this this year, I think that COVID, as devastating as it was, and it, but the convergence of certain things mm. came together in a way. So you have these horrific things happening, and they are horrific. But that convergence is part of what's allowed this monumental shift, right? So um, mm-hmm. COVID exposed yet again the marginalization of certain individuals in this country, that being black and brown people. Yeah. Um, then you, then, you know, the, the, the recent murders, because the murders are nonstop. Mm-hmm. It's just the recent ones. And again, the fact that one was in particular, Mr. Floyd was so was blatant and horrific that, um, that then catapulted everyone to say, okay, stop. It's all different. And I've seen just within my own organization, within a very short period of time too, that like, it, it changed. Like we made the decision, whoever you want to call the we that we have to do something differently. And yes, I was back there with my voice, using it in whatever way I could. But again, at least um, having the leadership say, yes, we have to be responsive, right? And I think that anyone who's leading, whether it's an organization such as uh, the one where I am or any, any organization, any leader has to say, I need to do something and be responsive. Um, one, to be responsive to their own uh, staff, community uh, employees, but also to the communities or their clients or or buys their products or whatever it may be, because this is the wave, right? This is where we're going. Yeah. So um, I, I, I'm, I remain hopeful and optimistic, although it's a very um, arduous and painful journey, but I do believe that it is going to be something better at the end. And I've seen like little things already that makes me feel that way, even though it's a constant, you know, it's, it's, you know, some days like today I'm okay, but if you'd gotten me another day last week, I would have been, com- I was, I would have been depleted, right? Cause it was just yeah. so much and so many conversations. And so, just, yeah. before, just before this, I had a conversation with the group and, you know, that was impactful as well. I'm sorry. Yes. No, no, that, that's, that's okay. Um, and, and, and Scott, jump in at any time, just real quick. I, I felt the need to ask if, if the gap of understanding around the issues that we're discussing uh, in 10 being the worst was a 10. Uh, where do you think it's going to be in the next six months? Of understanding? In a year. In um, a year. I don't know. So it depends, right? So it depends on how much people, and when I say this, um, I really will say it depends on how much, um, when I speak my white colleagues or um, those in those in positions of power who tend to be white uh, really want to take this seriously. I, I think it'll shift. It has to, uh, right? It, it does. It does have to shift. Um, I don't know. I never thought about putting it on a scale, but I I I I, uh, I do believe that in on the margins it's going to change. There are people again. I you know I only I deal with this you know small population as it relates to the nation, but those uh, with whom I come in contact. Uh, they're ready for change. Um, I think that there are many in positions of power. And again, when you talk about racism, and that's, that's, that's where the heat is right now, it's all about racism and creating an anti-racist culture and being anti-racist in one's behaviors. Those are the words and that's the conversation. 
I think that um, people are going to have to adopt that or they're not going to survive, meaning their businesses, they're just those with whom they interact, because I think that that is where, um, that's where the movement's going to be. It's really going to be, we're going to hold, stand everything up to be, you have to be anti-racist. I don't know what, the, what that means on a scale. Maybe it's eight, I don't know. So, uh, so let's just take healthcare, for example. And I know that this is touching, but again, we're beyond uh, whether it's a sensitive topic or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the majority of healthcare executives are non-diverse. Mm-hmm. What do you think, just what is your general thought about the impact, the impact that this social unrest has to not only to the immediate future of healthcare, but long-term. So that's going to, I honestly believe that's going to change. So when we think about who sits in the power seats, right, whether it's healthcare or legal system or finance, it's generally going to be white men and then maybe white women. Because um, that's where, if you look at the, the, the uh, structure of racism, the institutional racism, systemic racism, it's all uh, predicated on white privilege and holding on to power, privilege, and resource. That's what it is, right? So that's the way the system was designed, for white folks to have that power and privilege, and then let a few blacks in so that they can say, okay, we got a couple of people here to make it look good. That's, that's the reality. And I, I just want to touch on something that you asked me um, earlier in, in terms of how I feel. So, And this is, again, just how I feel some days, and it just depends on where I am. Some days I feel that now, because of the social unrest, because of the pressure that's being put upon many, right? It's not just healthcare, but within healthcare, of course, yeah. is that um, oh, people are going to make huge changes. They're going to put more people, black people, in positions of power. They're going to, you know, whether it's, and I don't like to use this term, but a figurehead or actually giving them power, because it really does boil down to how much of that are you, that power that you uh, white folks have, are you going to allow others to share in that? and share that wealth and share that resource and really get, give up some of your privilege. That's the real root of the conversation. Really hard for people to, to grasp that in totality and really understand what that means. But do I think that it will result in more people um, being promoted up or hired into positions of power? Absolutely, because right now, uh, people don't have a choice. They kind of have to do it, right? Otherwise, they're not going to be able to show their face publicly. Where, where you see it happen a lot is that, you know, the, the typical positions and human resources and positions of diversity. So that, that's kind of blowing up right now. Ton, you know, people, you know, great opportunities there, but it has to go deeper. So in our organization, uh, staying on tap with your question, we're looking and, we, and, and I believe in earnest and I believe it's sincere because otherwise I wouldn't be part of that movement if I didn't think it was, if, if folks didn't mean it, that we are really revamping how we do everything. We're looking to dismantle um, the, the, the systemic racism, um, institutional racism that exists and really rethink policies, practices, procedures, everything, and get more people involved in discussion. So we're already doing that. That's something that's happening now and it will continue to happen. So that momentum, is, you know, it's not going to change from today to tomorrow where the place is full of black people running the place, but you, you, you start to build out things and we are doing that actively. Um, and I think other companies will as well. Uh, but you have, but I also believe you didn't ask me this, but I'll just say it. Oh, <laughs> to, make, to make that real, and so that you know, again, we have over forty-two thousand employees who are watching what we're doing, right? So, 
we, we went out big saying we have all of these things that we want to do, that we want to do the right thing, that we want this anti-racist culture, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You can't back down from that, right? You have told your community, your staff, this is what you're for. So our leadership has said that, and we really are working towards that. We have to sustain that over time, right? It can't be something that we're doing just this summer because there's some protests. It has to be sustained. It has to be part of the organization. And um, I believe that we will do that. You know, I, I proceed with some level of caution because, you know, if, if there's another big thing that happens, whether it's a pandemic or something else, or the resurgence of the pandemic, yeah. you don't want that to get in the way of these other things because this can't go away. Well, this, Pam, this is what I was going to ask. Is, it, is, this, uh, is this have urgency just because the spotlight's on it now? And if things shift, like you said, uh, the pandemic, something other, some other major event in the world, if, if, will this get in the way of the focus in, this is my big concern is, so what are people, and so here's my point is to make sure that that momentum is built uh, so that it is established a strong enough foundation so that nothing gets in its way, what should leaders be doing right now? Well, that's when you have to look at everything. And that means all practices, policies, and see where you have uh, that racism is embedded, right? So it's not so simple as just hiring some black people, right? That's a fallacy, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's not going to change everything overnight. You have white people in power, that thinking, that dominant culture is there. So one of the first things is, is to really start to have open discussions about what it, what it is we're talking about, and that is racism. People in organizations where it's predominated by black, uh, by whites, don't talk about, they don't even use the word black or they don't say racist. I've had people call me and say, is it okay to say that someone's black? I mean, it's so, it's the, the level of people being uncomfortable around just the discussions yeah. is intense. And with that, there has been silence on the matter. So the work that I'm doing now is opening up and helping folks to have those discussions. And we're doing that throughout our organization, uh, others of my team and I. And we talk about the need to have the discussions, you frame it, you talk what it is, um, and then what it does and how it presents in the organization. That's a huge movement. And watching people and listening to people as they go through this transition is really, um, it's transforming. And that, that, will, that will help make the change. And then, you, then with that, you couple that with you know, specific initiatives or items. But it's not just, oh, I hired some more black people and I'm done. You start to look at, I'll, I'll, I'll ramble off a few, but you start to look at like your, your, uh, your, your talent pipeline programs or how you promote people within the organization or in, in terms of healthcare because we're focused on disparities and, and equity. Yeah. Um, and you, you start to include those measures as part of regular work that happens. And I can tell you in many organizations, including ours, we didn't necessarily have our standard reporting reflecting race, ethnicity, and other um, socioeconomic uh, or demographic uh, variables to really examine uh, disparities. So now we have shifted that. A lot of work has been done on that. So that's getting embedded in our reporting, our, science, our research that our scientists are doing, and other reports on quality. So you make that a part of a standard measure. It can't just be that it's like some person showing up and they're black and sitting in the room and it fixes it. So you, exactly. go, back to, you go back to those things that you measure and how you either reward people or consider yourselves as meeting your goals. So in our case, because it's healthcare, you look at 
and clinical measures around disparities. And I've done a lot, a lot of work in looking at data, patient, um, race, ethnicity, and how we, even how you collect information and what's valid. And you build it into everything. So it gets built into practices so it becomes standard, right? That's, that's a long answer to your, to your question. But you have to approach it that way. So um, I think that there's upfront work that you do kind of in the moment, which is educate, 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 get people comfortable around the terminology, race, bias, have conversations, start talking about it. And it has, that has to be consistent and especially to support staff and teams who are coming into, into the environment, who are anxious, upset, enraged, whatever range of emotions you want to talk about because of what's happening in their communities or happening to them and the fear that they have. You don't hide and step away from those conversations. You allow people in your environment to express, right? Because they spend the vast majority of their day working, working with other people. So you get that, again, up front, you start having those conversations. And then the other work that happens is you build out your strategies on what you're going to change, where it looks, which policies, which practices, what things you can start to change, supplies, who are you getting your supplies from, how are you working with your local communities. There's a list of things that organizations can do. Well, and, and by the way, Pam, th- thank you for sharing that because, uh, you know, let, let's remember, and, and again, just to educate our audience, that you mentioned black and brown people, how they've been affected by, you know, COVID. Uh, but let's also remind everyone that uh, that Blacks and Hispanics are two populations that are most um, susceptible to chronic disease states. So as you think, not just short term, but long term, especially on the clinical side, you talk about measures and metrics. We need to see some changes fast. Right. <laughs> because if not, I mean, these are things that, it, like you said, it's not the... Uh, just about putting someone black in a role. There are systemic issues that exist, not only of racism, but but old, outdated standards that cannot scale in their current form that are not honoring today's age of personalization. And that means the people that we need to learn how to best serve their chronic conditions. And, And this is something we don't have 10 years to plan for. This has to happen now. Well, it's deeper than that, actually. When you think about, again, go, if, we, if we use the premise and keep repeating the premise that racism is systemic and therefore it's in everything, right? Mm. So in academic medicine, there is systemic racism embedded in how medicine is taught, right? Yes. Um, it, it, it's there. So certain of the misconceptions or, or notions are that there's the, the, the whole concept of race as a social construct, that, that the biological differences between whites and blacks. So that was intentionally created so that whites could continue to oppress and justify the oppression of people who are not of the white race. Um, with that, in medicine, those things are perpetuated. So false beliefs about um, blacks not uh, uh, experiencing pain in the same way. So the use of pain medication is different. There's a, there's a lot of history on that um, in terms of experiments that were done on blacks where, um, where you know, they were subjected to things that whites were not. So there's, there's a lot of history on how in academic medicine, we have to really think about shifting how we teach our medical students, mm. how people respond when they see a black person come in, how they're, how, you know, all, all those things. So that's part of, that's part of the issue. We've been, 
dealing with that on the academic uh, med- medical side for, for many years, right? Starting to rethink and, t- and teach differently um, how we look at me- medicine um, in this country. And with that, the disparities that black and brown people experience, there's nothing new. There's nothing new about any of this that, we're, that we've been talking about, right? It's Again, true. COVID just kind of um, ex- exacerbated because, you know, COVID is a big thing. But all those disparities on, you think about diabetes, heart disease, some of the other obesity, some of those other things are existing and have been persistent within the black and brown communities for years. Yeah. And it's based on a lot of the bias that's perpetuated in, me- in medicine in terms of how those patients are treated mm. um, and the standards and, and how they're evaluated and those uh, practitioners who care. So, so Scott, I can't yeah. believe that I haven't brought you into the fold yet, but I'm going to be quiet a moment. Help us understand what's happening here from uh, a human race and humanity perspective. What are you gathering from all this as we get close to wrapping it up? Well, the first thing I gather is that there are definitely times to be an agent or part of the agency of change where listening is more important than asking. And listening is more important than framing. That there comes a time for those in highest up leadership positions where they just need to be quiet and they just need to listen for a while. And it's going to be very, very painful in many ways, both economically for their bottom line. But I think what hurts most for folks that just need to listen for a while Mm -hmm. is how it's going to hurt on the inside when they really start understanding the depths with what Pam is talking about. Because what I'm loving so much, and that's why I am uncharacteristically quiet today, because today I'm recognizing this is a moment for listening. And Pam, I just want to say that, you know, you're helping me out in placing some thoughts together when I'm trying to understand the current moment. And I think I share with you the optimism that is very tempered, because this optimism is about the now. But I think as an anthropologist and as a someone who thinks in the long term of what is what is humanity and how have we gotten here that um, I'm nervous because I know we've done this before. And here we are again. I saw Cory Booker give just one of the most, for me, a transformative, um, just heart to heart. It wasn't a speech. It was him just talking off the cuff. And it was him talking about when I and he were the same age and we were out on the streets and banging banging down sort of doors and, 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 and just being angry and acting up because there was another problem where essentially we all got together and the youth of the era came out to the streets and we started demanding change and we were so hopeful. But what he said was, here he is and here I am sort of right alongside him thinking, now our kids are doing the same thing. So we were in a space before. Now I'm not even... Like in, and that's one side of it, right? And I'm going to shut up after this because I want to relate back to your point about just the fact that this has been going on for a long time, and we need to understand this as a unique moment. But that this is a unique moment that too will come back in 10, 20 years if we don't do something very different. I am drawn to the Caribbean as well, and in fact, with you're talking about the, the persistence of this problem, that we can't just assume that the energy out day is going to change it. Um, I, I'm drawn to France Fanon in Martinique, 
when he talked about the decolonization movement that was, a, that was happening before I was even conscious, right, or alive. And one of the things he warned us is that when we have a moment like today where there is going to be significant opportunity for transformation, the most probable outcome is going to be we're going to replace one sort of inequity with another. We're going to do a lot of substitutional thinking here, and we're going to change some words. But when we get out of this and we start thinking about other things, we're going to find ourselves literally right back where we are now. And so what I'd like to ask you to, to, to maybe share some perspective on is when we're looking towards those people who are actively trying to embody change and to not just speak it, but to, to take action, which includes listening, but it includes doing more than that. What do you think your mother would say, right? In terms of those great lessons, I was writing this down about the lessons that you said you didn't even catch quite away, but more recently, they're just coming to you bigger and bigger. What do you think these lessons that were around in decolonization moments, what can we learn from those that, that we didn't pick up yet when we're sitting here at this moment where we might be able to decolonize history, decolonize medicine, decolonize HR? Big question. Time for me to shut up. And um, again, uncharacteristically of me, um, I really don't have much to say or add because this is a day and you are a voice that I need to listen to. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I think you actually said it. I think that um, we have to have people listen more. And that's one of the things that we're, we talk about in our organization and when I speak with others about listening to the, to the voice of those marginalized um, individuals. And I don't know what it is, but I do believe that right now is different in a way because I do believe that we, while we have spoken you know, the, about racism in the past, and while we've spoken about inequities, I don't think that it has gone to the level where we're really challenging the big corporations, because this is now, you know, the big corporations and institutions in the country are being asked to revamp policies and practices. And again, it's not just about hiring some black people and then everything goes away. And we're also asking the white people who have the power to be responsible for making the change, right? It is not about black and brown. We definitely say this, that it's not, this is not a black and brown person's problem to solve. This is a white person's problem to solve. And if we want economic stability in this country, if we want you know, to, to, uh, folks to really hold true to their corporations and the businesses and the healthcare and the outcomes that we talked about, that white people have to change and embrace this, and, you know, again, I've seen, you know, just in, you know, my small vantage point and what I see in impact, I really do see fundamental change in people in a way that I don't know if I ever experienced before. I can tell you that I haven't, been, I've been doing this work in diversity and inclusion for over 14 years. So I would say the same types of things, right? And talk about the importance of having the same kind of programs, right? We have to have more people. We have to pay attention to outcomes, et cetera. But no one paid attention. The leaders would basically just say, okay, well, you go ahead and do that, and great, I'll rubber stamp it or whatever that phrase is, so that everything is okay. But now it's different. Now they're doing things. They have to be the, the ones who are acting. Those are the, the actors, right, who have to go in and make the change with folks like me or in my roles guiding them, but I'm not 
doing, they, they have to do. And they have to be held accountable. And they have to lead their teams. And they have to think about what it's like to wield this power as a white person and understand that what they've created in the system and the structure. And if they don't want to do that, then you're right. Then we won't move. But I do believe that if, we, if there's a swell of individuals or, or, or the, that group or that body who are committed to it, then I think there will be a change. I have to say that, you know, the organization where I am, I do not think that um, Mount Sinai Health System will be the same or feel the same. I don't know if you asked me at the beginning, Glenn, a year from now, 10 years from now. I think it'll feel quite different um, in a couple of years based on what we're, what we're committing to right now. It's already starting to feel different. I can just tell you the people, Black people who never would speak up are now speaking up because they weren't, no one felt comfortable to speak. So now they're hearing people's voices are being heard. We're bringing in, you know, younger folks into who we're, who we're positioning to be future leaders in healthcare who are uh, Black and Brown people who are, who are sitting with senior leadership and sharing their opinions and their feelings. It never happened before. And the leaders are listening, going back to your point. They're listening. That listening is key. Thank you. So, so Pam, if you could uh, close it by responding to this question, please. <clears throat> Why is it <clears throat> essential for not just healthcare, but for all industries to recognize that this moment of personalization will define the futures the future of those enterprises. What, what do you say to those that still don't understand what that means? Well, you know, I think what drives a lot of individuals in business, and I've had conversations with a number of folks and white male CEOs um, within the healthcare and outside of healthcare. And it's if you want to survive, right? If they want their businesses to survive, if they want to be able to go forward. And if they actually have a conscience, right, about... And, and, and think about what they're doing, that they have to adopt this and, and think about making that change. I do believe, and again, I, I remain optimistic, it's kind of like they never had to think about it before because part of that white privilege is you never had to worry about it. Exactly. You honestly did not. When you really think about it, because when I, and, and most of the, the real work gets done when you have one-on-one -on -one conversations with people because then, then they're not so scared and vulnerable and all that, especially a leader who doesn't want folks to see that he or she may not know what they're doing. But one, letting them be more vulnerable is helpful. And two, they, some of them have just said, I, I just didn't even know. There's so, most of it is, I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know. Um, once they know, I, I had a conversation with, with someone this morning. They, a lot of people feel shamed. Like, you know, they feel shameful about what they've allowed to, to persist because of that privilege that they've had. They never had to look, and I'm just going to say this in this way, they never had to look down and see what others were suffering. And if you're a white male especially, right, because that's probably in this society, that which is held in, you know, highest esteem in that privilege circle, um, they can easily go through life and not have to worry about any of this stuff. But um, now they realize that they have, if, if they're really holding power in their companies or enterprise, that they have people that they have to answer to and be, and be responsible to. And that will shift, um, you know, who uses their services, their company, buys their products, social media changes, all of that. The younger generation that we referred to uh, earlier, you know, they, they can really shift thinking and where people do business, right? Um, if folks aren't responsive, you can shut, the, I believe they can shut down a company pretty quickly, right? Yeah. Um, 
very quickly just by getting, you know, saying, oh, wait a minute, th- th- these, these people are serving us the way we need to be served. So, yeah, it's the time. And, and I do believe all those things come together for a reason. It's not one, one single event. It's the, you know, it's COVID, it's, it's the racial tension, it's the use of social media, even though I might say from day to day, social media drives me crazy. But if there's a, um, if you, I'm, again, looking at the good of things, right, there's always something bad going on. If you focus on the good, there's a lot of influence that, that uh, maintained or held within social media. And again, um, those younger folks who are able to uh, make, it, make an impact. And if we don't hear their voices, then everybody's in trouble. Pam, thank you so much. What, what a powerful conversation. And I really, uh, I think you've shed a lot of light on not just what we need to do, but how we need to do it. And that we need to, we, we can't stop in this journey of driving change, because now change comes from everywhere, not just uh, those that have experienced that quote unquote privilege. Uh, At the end of the day, I think that uh, what we're going to see is um, a world that is detaching itself more and more from old standards, uh, and they will be renewed because of what we're learning every day about how individuals are feeling, what they're thinking, um, and how they need to be part of reinventing uh, the old ways of doing things, uh, because I think that what we're all witnessing is a major systemic uh, collapse that's taking place. And, you know, it's interesting if you really reflect on this, um, it's the black community that uh, lit the fire to fix the problems which are broader. not the first time <laughs> right not the first time that's what i'm worried about we gotta like yeah. I, like this is what yeah we, this is it not, well right. we keep these conversations going right so right on right on we keep these conversations going that's right well pam thank you again so so much uh we greatly appreciate you taking the time for us and as i always share when you lead in the age of personalization you will see things that others don't do what others won't and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution not evolution.